Don't try and tie this into setting the tone. I set the tone. You set the tone with words. (laughs) (laughs) When I should have said it with slapping you. Copier Room in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 75 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're getting 2017 off on the right foot as we discuss setting the right tone for your games. But first, with the Morning Glory campaign complete, a new tale begins. Rogue Trader. And later, the inventor has a gadget for every occasion in the Character Creation Forge. So I do want to announce uh, kind of a cool project that I was part of called Two Weeks. It's a, an anthology, a collection of micro RPGs was released on DriveThruRPG. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. What's cool about it is it's 13 different games by 13 different designers. Some are podcasters, some have designed other games, some are first-time designers, all written, published in a you know about 40-page document on drive through and all proceeds benefit the ACLU. So it's for charity. And it's named two weeks because it started as we have two weeks to write the game. Get going. Yeah. So how long was your contribution? Uh, four pages. Okay. So at least 90% of this is good. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and given what's coming later this month, uh, January 20th, actually, the ACLU is going to need all the money it can get. Probably, yeah. So I guess help it out before our new president nukes it? Yeah, why not? Yeah. So my game was called Reckon is Racing. It is a NASCAR-themed sort of fiasco-like uh, storytelling game. You lost me at my game. No, no, you lost me at NASCAR. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, you don't need a lot of NASCAR knowledge to play it. and it is, Oh, that's good. It, it kind of lampoons NASCAR, actually. It's it's about being a flawed member of a uh, of a small time racing team, just trying to help the team win and get out of this town. So, do you play the driver, the pit crew? You play the owner? Me- members of the crew. Ah, well, you could be the driver as well, but uh, you you are all members of the same crew in some capacity. You could be the owner, the driver, uh, the social media outreach expert. Can you be the car? I can't say for sure if it would work if you were the car. <laughs> I gotta be honest here. So it's just NASCAR. Could it be adapted to things like Rally Car? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Oh, it's versatile. Mm, yeah, Rally Car, Indy Car, uh, Formula One. You're getting me back on board. Yeah, any type of racing. Yeah, really. Uh, the key is you want that backwater flavor. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so, so you, it, it's got to be small time, right? You don't want to be in the not like the Denali, right? <laughs> I mean, or it could be. You just want to be like you know the the longest odds team in the Denali. Oh, yeah, yeah. This appeals to the part of me that spent years down south. (laughs) It it came from the part of me that spent years down south. Mm. But, uh, yeah, we have yet to get this to our table, but it has been playtested because our table refuses to play a NASCAR-themed game. (laughs) I mean, you just need to get us drunk enough, which happens every week. I know, I know. We're going to start playing Rogue Trader, and then I'm just going to like quickly pivot, and you guys aren't even going to notice. Yeah, it's true. Oh, through crazy machinations of the warp. Yep. 45 <laughs> minutes later, we're back in Rogue Trader. You won't even know what hit you. 
So shameless self-promotion out of the way. Uh, let's move on. We have a bonus mailbag question. Uh, we, we did a mailbag a couple episodes ago. This one came in just after we recorded, so we wanted to give it the light of day. This came in from uh, listener Len, who was uh, one of our longtime listeners. First off, he asks, from concept to publishing, how many hours does a single episode of Total Party Thrill take to make on average? And what's the most time-consuming part of this process? So I would say it's probably 8 to 12 hours per episode. Yeah, like man hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the most time-consuming part of it is definitely editing. Yeah, It's lonely. Absolutely. It's time-consuming. Like, that's a solid four to five hours. Yeah, every episode. It's not a thing you, like we can share. Like, one of us just has to do it. Exactly. But yeah, from, like, conception, which is mainly us just sort of, like, staring into space until, like... Epiphany happens. Right. <laughs> to, our our like, main creative driver. Yeah. Luck. <laughs> and then, like, actually writing all the show notes... And then arguing over the show notes. And then recording. And then interrupting our recording for random sirens because we record in my apartment. Right. And then staring again at our screens while we come up with builds for the character creation forge, which is usually like at least an hour per episode of us like leafing through books and being like, ah, that doesn't work at all. Right. And then at the end of recording, we always say, okay, we got to prep better for next time. So we don't spend so much time on this. Oh yeah. We're, we're, we're going to be ready to go and just knock it out. Right. Never happens. Ever, ever happens. But okay. So now it's actually sounding more like 12 hours. Uh, but then, you know, we also record multiple episodes at a time. So we aren't sitting down each week to record. We usually record two or three at a clip. Yeah. The next part of the question, what do you both enjoy the most about making Total Party Thrill? I think it's um, all the money. It's definitely the money. (laughs) That we spend. Spend. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I like hearing myself talk. (laughs) Okay, well, you stole my answer, so I guess I'll say the listeners. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yes, that's what I meant. I do it for the fans. Yeah, actually, that is a really neat part about being in a podcast is... um, is hearing feedback and, and hearing that people are listening to what you're saying and, and agreeing or disagreeing or, you know, sharing their experiences and those kind of things. Um, I used to hate gaming stories and now mm. I've kind of grown to appreciate them. So, uh, that, that is actually my favorite part about this. Wow. I love gaming stories. Send us your gaming stories. Send them to Ishan just so I don't get tired of them. Yeah. But like, don't email it. Tweet storm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you actually enjoy most? Yeah, the additional interaction with the community. It's strange. Like, this is a hobby that I think most of us consider to be really interactive and social. But the sort of sphere of influence is limited to, like, a handful of people. You know, five to Mm -hmm. seven people. That you get to know really intimately and you spend a lot of time with them and you have, like, really great experiences. But before this, anyway, didn't spend a whole lot of time outside of my core gaming group. Well, that's another thing is we definitely play more games because of the podcast yeah that's true and i do love guesting on other shows because it sort of gives an opportunity to like not talk to you and not edit oh yeah that's the best part oh man (laughs) all right and then the uh the third question in this triple threat here's a mechanics question to change things up how do you deal with effects like fog cloud that obscure terrain when using a grid with minis PHB page 194 talks about guessing the square an opponent is in before making an attack, but how do players go about guessing authentically the square without hiding all the minis somehow? Uh, you don't use those effects. Just don't touch them. Oh, that, that's one way to do it. No, no, you, you should. I, you tend to use this kind of thing sparingly, but 
when I'm using minis and there's an effect that obscures vision like this, I actually just sort of freeze the field. So there are minis on the table. The players obviously know where their characters are and I just don't touch the enemy mini, right? So that is sort of a marker of the last place you knew that they were. I keep in my head where they have moved to. Hmm. I don't know if you ever played uh, this game called Scotland Yard. Nope. Like one player controlled a spy who would be at a secret location. Oh, yeah. And one of the things you had to do was sort of like, I think you had to write down ahead of time the location that you're that the spy was at and then the other players would like try to converge their police on that yeah clue the great museum caper letters to Whitechapel, hidden movements a thing you don't need to write it down because like you're the gm right right (laughs) they show up wherever they show up yeah but you know just have it in your head oh that's where they moved and then the players actually are authentically guessing oh yeah i i don't bother with that that's way too much work so i just have players roll a die oh that's interesting yeah it's just, just random yeah, you know, I mean, it's I'll just judge each round it's going to get less likely. Mm-hmm. And, and after a couple of rounds, you just don't know, right? Unless you have some means of figuring that out. But otherwise, yeah, I would just say, like, you're pretty sure he's in one of these six squares, so roll a d6. I mean, you, if players go long enough without finding this person, I just have the enemy stab one of them. Hey, you know where he is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's definitely behind you and to the left. Right. Near your kidney. Yeah, he's... Uh, mm. Yeah, knuckles deep in your uh, <laughs> in your flank. All right. So up until now, we have been recounting the exploits of the Morning Glory campaign, but we finished that two weeks ago, which means now we're moving on to another campaign. Shane, can you set the mood for our Rogue Trader game? Well, it is the forty-first millennium, and in the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war. So. I'm hearing swashbucklers. Yeah, kind of like that. (laughs) Swashbuckling space pirates. Now, to be fair, this is, I think, the third time that you tried to run a pirates game with this group. Yep. Third time, third different system. Finally found one that stuck. (laughs) Spaceships. Yeah. (laughs) We tried fantasy pirates. Mm -hmm. We tried actual pirates. And then we got space pirates. Yeah. If I had to move any further in the future, I don't know what I would do. However, it's not like this game hit the ground running. No. So this game originally started because I was prepping a one-shot for a convention. And I wanted to playtest the one-shot before I, you know, (laughs) flew to a convention to run it for actual people. And, uh, you know, true to form, our group are always playing against type, agreed to the Mm one-shot rejected all of my pre-gen characters Mm -hmm. and refused to limit it to a single session. Mm -hmm. So I got zero practice for the convention. (laughs) I mean, in our, well, I guess not defense, actually, in our incrimination, uh, we knew it was a one-shot. And so in our minds, there were no consequences. Right. So this game started as Dark Heresy, which is the uh, Warhammer 40k RPG from Fantasy Flight Games. We have talked about it a couple times um, if you want to know a little bit more about the setting we covered that in episode 55 uh, we talked about warhammer 40k as a, as a setting and then also talked a little bit about what each of the games in the line focus on so dark heresy is about the imperial inquisition hunting down heretics and demons and aliens xenos in terminology to um, purge them and protect the Imperium. Yeah, witch hunters. Basically. So we had a one-shot. 
uh, you guys all rolled up characters completely mm-hmm. at random, maximized them for combat effectiveness because it's a deadly system, mm-hmm. and you rolled up to the planet of Novabella, a backward agri-world, a small place uh, known for its devotion to a hard life, very, very farming forward. Uh, they have very low technology levels. They sort of use ancient farming practices. The one thing that they do is they uh, collect their harvest and then they process it into ration bars, which they then tithe to the Imperium to fuel its everlasting war effort. Yeah, and of course our crew of inquisitorial acolytes, mainly comprised of hive scum and thuggish murderers. Uh, yeah, and a couple probably actual heretics of your own. Right. Uh, we're really not impressed with this te- with this planet no so you had been sent by an inquisitor uh inquisitor by the name of bones and (laughs) uh (laughs) he sent you along on the rogue trader vessel his enduring light to convey you to novabella because they had missed their tithe um actually for quite a while um, like 17 years yeah but being as things go in the imperium no one had really noticed because, you know, the administratum has a lot of paperwork and uh, nobody noticed that, yeah, and, you know, some small backwater planet hadn't been sending along their ration bars. And maybe the scribe who was in charge of noting that got eaten by a demon. Or died on the job. Yeah. Who knows? No one noticed for 17 years. Right. So the Inquisitor said, hey, you guys are, uh, you know, a little wet behind the ears. Why don't you go handle that? I've got a rogue trader here who will take you, who will wait for you in orbit. And uh, once the tithe is restored we can get on to bigger and better things and so you went yeah took a shuttle down to the planet and found really religious community yeah like an almost idyllic pastoral society yeah very bucolic mm-hmm. they did have a factory they they did have some combustion engines and those types of things but it was it was almost kind of amish sort of in their level of technology you know yeah. they, they kind of rejected a lot of the modern things but they had this firm faith rooted in the harvest so their view of the god emperor of mankind was that he was the god of the harvest and so all of their struggles and trials and tribulations as farmers were how they venerate him how quaint so we rolled up in our carapace armor with our heavy weapons and you go knock on the door of the church (laughs) yep where does everyone gather here oh okay yeah they're in church (laughs) weird Yeah, so you initially landed, uh, or you you kind of flew over and found that there was no one, Mm -hmm. that the the stockyards were abandoned, the factory, the manufactorum was abandoned, that there was no one in the streets, that, you know, things were gathered like people were here, but there was just no one present. And when you landed, you realized they were all in their hour of devotion. Yeah, we rolled our eyes and then went in. Yeah. Uh, Didn't interrupt the service. No, I mean, we're not, well, most of us aren't heretics right uh so you went to the next biggest building in town Mm -hmm. (laughs) knocked on the door uh introduced yourselves i don't think we flashed rosettes yet no did you did you identify yourselves as inquisitors or as members of the inquisition not immediately we did in a little bit well at at first we got stonewalled right yeah so they were like okay off-worlders we don't really care about you Mm -hmm. get out of here uh you kind of made your way past the secretary and uh and then he stepped out um, the uh, the lieutenant that you were looking for, mm-hmm. uh, lieutenant governor, really. And uh, you guys drew weapons on him. Yeah, two things happened at the same time. We flashed our rosette. One of us flashed a rosette, 
And my character, Friends Job, who rolled of quite low intelligence, started smashing things. Namely, the lieutenant governor. Yeah, with his mono warhammer. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I believe this was prompted because he was carrying a bolt pistol. Which I wanted. Which was a symbol of office. And if I had it, then I would be in charge. <laughs> right. Of course, that's how it works. Look, Thru- I, throughout look, the Imperium. Look, I rolled a very low intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, within a couple hours of landing on planet, mm-hmm. you had already killed one of the, I don't know, five most powerful people in its capital. And I had a bolt pistol. And you had a bolt pistol. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So, Shane, what went wrong with that one shot? Is uh, it... My players are dicks. <laughs> True. Straight up, that's what went wrong. <laughs> you guys met a game that it was a one shot, <laughs> and you acted like dicks. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. All right, so this week we are talking about setting the tone in a game so that everyone at the table is on the same page. So first off, why is this even really necessary? Like, we talk a lot about having a session zero and making sure that there's open communication above the table so that people know what's going on. But let's face it, we've all been in that awkward situation where, you know, you you go to a movie because you think it's in one genre and it turns out to be in a different genre. Like, for example, Ishan wants to go see a sci-fi movie and he buys a ticket to Event Horizon. I, I will let you know I made the same mistake, except <laughs> I was a blockbuster. <laughs> And it turns out that Event Horizon is only nominally a sci-fi movie. It is a terrifying... It, it's basically Warhammer 40K, the movie, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's a terrifying, gory horror movie. A dimension opens up to hell and yeah. demons flood out of it onto this poor spaceship. Literally hell. So if you don't... If you aren't fully aware of what you're getting into, you might end up in a situation that ends up to, ends up being too uncomfortable... Or unpleasant. And that's certainly not a situation you want to be in if you are playing a weekly game for four to six hours for like a year. Right. I mean, or, you know, not just just negatives, right? But it, it could also be lighter and campier than you're expecting. Mm-hmm. So you want a grim and serious game and you're getting jokes. Right. Come on, man. This is scary. Like, take this seriously. Right. And sometimes even the above the table talk that you might have when you're deciding what game to play or during session zero isn't enough to prevent your miscommunication, right? So like you say, oh, we're going to play a horror game. And I think, oh yeah, Kate Beckinsale and sexy vampires. Yeah, yeah. I'm into this. Let's True Blood's yeah. my favorite. I'm all over this. I love horror. And maybe you're thinking you want to play Ash versus Evil Dead. Or Cthulhu. Right. <laughs> and I think this is, uh, this is where it gets into specificity is important here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, you know, you can clearly tell the difference between campy horror like splatter horror and more of a gothic and and atmospheric horror yeah if you're throwing around multiple adjectives that really helps drill down right um you could also talk about pirates we talked about my three tries at pirate campaigns you know it's the difference between pirates of the caribbean which is D pirates Mm -hmm. versus robinson crusoe which is a whole different type of game right which is well, let's do a bunch of math on like how much we're carrying and like, right. how long are these supplies lasting? Well, yeah. <laughs> when do we get to start eating each other? <laughs> Immediately. Right. It's I think it's Friday. Right. Yeah. As with most things in RPGs, it's better to show than to tell. And ideally, you can both tell and then also show. Right. 
an example that really jumped out at me at our table very recently was like we're currently playing a Dark Sun game that Angelo is running. And we've talked before in a previous episode, we've talked about the Dark Sun setting, but it's it's pretty gritty. You know, it's it's a, a hard life, but in general, we're kind of like a light group, mm-hmm. you know. But there is a situation where Steph's character <laughs> murders a kid kid deserved it but i mean yeah. th- that's the thing in the in context that was actually the best case scenario that was the lawful good decision yeah anything else would have been either more evil or would have caused far worse consequences for innocent people right and that was i think the first time playing in that dark sun game where i was like oh like i knew what kind of game we were playing but now it was like oh it it is happening at this table like that was a pretty hardcore decision. I understand why that decision was made. I fully support it, but man, like that's the direction this is going in. Yeah. But, you know, and and that's a an interesting example too because that's not tied to a genre, right? Mm-hmm. Like sandals and sorcery does not require you to kill children <laughs> to set the right. tone, right? Um, but genre is often the starting point for how we think about tone. Mhm. So you, you've got to kind of keep that in mind, right? It's it's genre plus. Yeah, genre is a, an easy shorthand to use. It's a terminology that we most of us have in common, and it's really useful info to telegraph to your players. So how do you actually go about doing this at the table? So I think there's two things, and we're going to focus on one more so than the other. So there's one is how you conduct yourself at the table as a person, and the other is how you convey things through the game to the players from a storytelling and mechanical standpoint. So uh, we're going to focus more on the storytelling and mechanics, but I do want to touch a little bit on how you handle it at the table, right? So things like uh, if you want to play a serious game as a GM, you don't want to be cracking jokes with your players, right? You want to kind of actually be tamping down on your players when they're making out of character comments or bringing in, you know, pop culture references into your fantasy game or those types of things. Or, um, you know, if you're playing a horror game at a convention, you want to try and find a quiet place to sort of set that tone. Um, because if people are laughing and joking all around you, it's going to be tough to really get into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've heard of people dimming the lights or turning out the lights and playing by candlelight for, you know, more intense kind of personal games. A, a sexy Kate Beckinsale gothic horror game. Yeah, preferably a one-on-one would be great. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, I mean, there's also like physical location around the room, right? The, the closer you are um, physically to each other, the more intimate a game is going to feel, right? If, if you're spread out all over the room and some people are sitting on a couch and some people are on the floor and some people are sitting at a table, you're going to be like a little less connected to each other. Mm-hmm. music right. is also an option here yeah but you don't want to be fumbling with music yeah so it, I, and this is all kind of different from what we plan to talk about but i wanted to touch on it and acknowledge it that um this is probably a future episode <laughs> but as you run a game and as you play a game there are some best practices to keep in mind for conveying the tone and the information that you want to give to other players it all begins with session zero. Oh yeah. Know? Everything begins with session zero. Yeah. That's why it's, it's called session zero. It's like session zero and rogue one are the two tenants of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it begins with the, like the, the selection of the system, the RPG system that you're playing with. 
right? If you're playing Shadows of the Demon Lord, it's probably not going to be like a light farcical game. Yeah, I, I that and the elevator pitch that you have for the game are, are sort of where tone first starts. Right. You get people on board in the first place. People probably are not showing up to the table with wildly different ideas about what you're going to do. Hopefully. But, you know, maybe maybe you always play with the same people and like people aren't even asking. Right. So then the next phase is character creation, right? In session zero, you are beginning to build characters and build a party. And you can say, you know, here's the game that we're playing. But if you have a list of allowed or disallowed classes, that can tell you a lot. If there are no clerics and no paladins, well, this is probably not going to be a game where like there's a lot of, you know, religious imagery or devout soul searching. Yeah, I mean, this is like we talked about low fantasy in D&D, right? If you have lots of spellcasters running around casting casual magic, it's not going to feel like low fantasy. Mm -hmm. In addition, what is your starting level or what is the XP budget that you're giving players to begin with? If it's lower, it's probably going to be more gritty. Right. If you're starting at level 19 in D&D, it doesn't really matter what kind of tone you're attempting to set. It's going to be pretty like high adventure epic yep also think about your character backgrounds and backstories and motivations and hooks and if they have secrets what you allow the players to play with Mm -hmm. is going to indicate to them how you want them to play if you force every character to have a secret about another character they're going to feel very interconnected and it's it's going to be a very social kind of drama if you allow crazy revenge stories, right, and that sort of thing in your background, you are very much gearing yourself towards a, a combat type of game because one character's arc hinges on murder, probably. It's justifiable homicide. Well, you know, hopefully. And this is a good time to consider your house rules as well. Um, if you need to fix mechanics to make them suit your tone better, this is a good time to do that. So we did that with water supplies and Dark Sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we spent so much time talking about how much water a character or a creature needed to drink and how much it weighed and how much it cost. Like just the fact that we spent that much time on it made us all realize, Oh, we better pay a lot of attention to this. Yeah. Uh, and, and same thing with exhaustion for crossing mm-hmm. the desert in dark sun. We beefed up the difficulty of doing that, which told everyone that, Hey, you need to make really hardy characters because otherwise you're not going to make it on the flip side in morning glory. I gave everyone a free feat at first level partly to kick the tires on the system but also that very readily telegraphed to everybody that like this is going to be a pretty high powered game yeah, this is adventure with an exclamation point <laughs> and remember ideally this is all happening in a session zero where the gm is able to guide the direction that people take with their ideas and and with the party and the characters that they're forming because you're giving them positive feedback or or in some cases negative feedback about the kinds of ideas that they're coming up with. You know, you're not necessarily shooting things down, but you're saying, uh, how about we move that in, you know, this direction? Or actually that doesn't exist, but here's how we can represent that within the confines of the game that we're going to play. Yeah, sort of avoiding tonal dissonance. Mm -hmm. If everybody decides that they want to play a big, hulking, kind of dumb brute, usually in a session zero, people say, oh, well, we shouldn't all be that. Let's, you know, oh, oh, I have another idea. I'll play like the Sage or the Rogue or whatever. But if you as the GM go, actually, yeah, Brute Squad works really well. That tells you everything you need to know about this game. Yep. So what about after session zero? Say session one. 
Well, those early experiences really carry much more weight when it comes to setting the tone. I mean, first off is your scene descriptions. What kind of words are you using? How much time do you spend lingering on what things look like or smell like? Or are you focusing much more on how the characters feel themselves? You know, is this going to be a game that revolves much more around the intra-party dynamic? Or are they going to act as a, a group to accomplish a particular goal? Right. And eventually you'll get to that first combat or that first conflict. Right? Yeah. And and then it becomes a question of who are you fighting? You know, why are you outnumbered? Is this something that was avoidable? What's the level of risk here? You know, is it possible that we all die if we fail this encounter? Yeah, those early combats inform the GM as much as they do the players. But for the players particularly, even on a subconscious level, players are watching to see what happens like how did we get into this fight did we try to run away from it and it chased we end us up, yeah. right <laughs> or like we just ran into another fight okay that probably means we should take the initiative when it comes to these kinds of situations mm -hmm. and from then on they're likely going to say no 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 there's an obstacle ahead of us it's going to come to meet us so let's just rush forward yeah and i mean this is one of my knocks on the starter set for D D fifth edition is that the first encounter is an ambush Mm. which just immediately tells players that things are trying to kill you, whether or not you expect them, which means your first reaction is always defensive. So if you want the players to feel like they should sneak past challenges or talk their way past them or avoid them or e engage socially, then you need to make that clear to them that it's a viable option and then reward them when they attempt it. You know, it's okay to fail, but you want to give them reasonable odds of success at doing that right the consequences need to explain to them or make clear to them that all right maybe this didn't work this time but i can look back and see a way it could have worked you know right. when when you're doing the debrief afterward even just in their heads or like out loud at the table if there is a, an alternative way that it it could have happened that's good if you want that to be an option make it clear that that wouldn't have worked if you don't want that to be an option exactly in your games yeah yeah, it's the difference between a failed outcome and a bad choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, PCs never want to make bad choices. They're usually okay with failing due to dice rolls or bad luck or whatever. Yeah, but but when it feels like, oh, we did that wrong. Mm -hmm. That was dumb. Right. Yeah. They, they probably will not try that approach again, particularly if it leads to character death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that players will figure out very early on is is it reasonable to expect that their pcs are going to survive mm -hmm. i mean you kill a pc early and they're going to be on their toes yeah i mean don't do it to prove a point you warn them hey this is going to be a deadly game mm -hmm. you know watch yourselves watch your tactics and then when they do something dumb or they split the party or they run off on their own if they die they die mm -hmm. or if they stand too close to a defiler uh, yeah, for multiple that. rounds uh, well, well technically I was lying unconscious on the ground too close to a defiler oh, so not okay. my fault I see well <laughs> you know uh, and then also you know NPCs are the way for you to bring your world to life mm -hmm. right so the personalities and behaviors of your NPCs if they're friendly or helpful versus antagonistic or challenging will convey the tone of the world because the first ones they run across are are going to shape their characters right 
your PCs will definitely notice if NPCs are stronger than them or weaker than them. And I think this is one of the things that we don't like about Forgotten Realms is that there are so many high-level NPCs that no matter what, you, you can't really have a party that feels like, oh, okay, we are the movers and shakers in this world and like the survival of a nation depends on us. Yeah. It's sort of strange you, in Forgotten Realms, you have this like high fantasy you know, with the, these epic characters running all around and, you know, demons and, and archliches like around every corner. But it's really more conducive to telling smaller scale stories because that's the kind of thing that the PCs can actually influence. Yeah, like save the town from the goblin invasion. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to save the world from Asmodeus's freedom from his bonds. Yeah, Elminster's doing that. Yeah. Oh, he should be. What, right? what is that guy doing right now? <laughs> Mistra. Not living up. <laughs> Great. Uh, and then loot is another good indicator. And loot is probably more of a general measure of reward. But is it gear that they're getting that makes them feel powerful? Is it table scraps that they're getting that makes them, just reminds them how low they are, right? Mm -hmm. Is it recognition and, and a title that goes along with a relatively small accomplishment, which builds them up? Mm -hmm. Or is it, hey, you did a good job. Like, get back on that other case. What are you doing here waiting around for me? Right. You know, it, it conveys how the world feels about you and your story. Yeah, that first loot list tells you so much. Right For Dark Sun, I think it was, you find three arrows. And some padded armor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One scimitar made of chipped glass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're going to be here a while, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I was playing in a 3.5 game quite a few years ago uh, that I was relatively new to. And it seems like geared toward, you know, high adventure. But I finally realized exactly what kind of game it was when the GM like pulled out the DMG and then just sort of started randomly rolling for items. Uh-huh. Like anything on the list. Yeah. And he, he I think he rolled a plus five constitution book. Oh, nice. And I was just like, oh, I've... I have never seen one of those in game. And we are randomly getting, we're getting these as random drops. Right. Oh, it's that kind of game. <laughs> okay. It's going to be bonkers. <laughs> hold, hold my nightstick. I'm going to go get some persistent meta magic. Right. I'll be right back. So another thing that helps separate from combat is the moral quandaries or ethical questions that you ask of the players, right? And, and ask them dramatically. So, you know, if you have a, a choice between route A and route B, which one do you take? Yeah, this is really, I think, the best way to show the party where they really are in this story. When the question presented to our Dark Sun party was, you know, do you suffer the defiler to live or do you kill the eight-year-old? Well, for our party, it was actually more like, do you suffer the defiler to live or do we kill one of our company brothers for not killing for this eight-year-old? Eight yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It was, it was way worse than life or death. <laughs> and for the, for the child as well. Yeah. Right. Because it's, you're a defiler. This mob is going to kill you or you're going to join the Templars, which is probably a fate worse than death. Yeah. This is a, a super tricky thing to do because it puts, tonal choices in the hands of your players so you want to make mm -hmm. sure that this is carefully designed so that you're not having to ask your players well remember what the tone of the setting is right remember this about the setting your character wouldn't do that mm -hmm. if you if you have to kind of remind them your character wouldn't 
you've set it up in a way that isn't conveying tone properly. Yeah, I am actually a big proponent of letting the players in on determining the tone. You know, we've talked a lot about giving PCs the opportunity to actually grow and develop as, you know, people with real personalities. And sometimes you present a question or a quandary and a player makes a decision, like a life-changing decision. And that not only changes the direction of that character, but changes the direction of the story for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there has to be something at stake. And that could be alternate paths mm-hmm. for their character. It could be life or death. It could be money or loot or fame, something, you know, a, a, a personal reward. It could be honor or respect or how the external world views you. Right. It could be the safety of their allies or their friends or their family. Yeah, this is a great thing to to risk an NPC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like show some affection towards an NPC and shortly find them tied to railroad tracks. <laughs> you know, and if a a mounty always like shows up in the nick of time to save one someone on railroad tracks, even if the party doesn't, well, now they have that information and they know that it's that type of game. Yeah, it it, it conveys the idea that their actions will likely be bailed out. So they can act more cartoonishly. Or, you know, spend more time exploring. Right. Or whatever. So let's talk about a couple different genres and ways to enhance those types of games. So if you are playing a gritty horror game... Which, by the way, I feel like horror is the hardest genre mm -hmm. to model in RPGs. And I, I still don't think there's actually a great horror rpg yet i mean it's so on trend these days i know so. there, there's lots of options i i just don't think they really convey the same sense of horror that uh, we expect from other media but yeah it's tough to set that particular mood but one good way to do it is to near the beginning suddenly and irrevocably kill an npc mm -hmm. uh, especially a pointless death that's, yeah that's a hallmark of horror <laughs> uh it's just you know what like you slip, you fall, you get eaten by zombies. The yeah. world sucks. Or like that NPC is having a, an in-depth, detailed conversation with your party. You know, they are making checks to deal with this person, persuading them. They're getting information, like they're talking to the sage, whatever. And then an arrow comes out of nowhere and, you know, punctures their throat. Yeah. Or suddenly, if in the darkness behind them, up comes the zombie and like... Brains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, all everything that you just did for the last 20 minutes didn't matter. They're dead. Yep. Run. <laughs> right. <laughs> so for grittier horror, you can also start in the middle of a chase. I think those are kind of iconic moments in, in gritty horror. Yeah. Your players don't necessarily know why they're running or what they're running from. They just know they're running. Uh, how about gothic horror? And we use this as more gothic, but um, existential horror. Mm -hmm. I think this is this is one of those situations where you know, the horror game begins with a conversation. And if in the middle of it, your NPC gets eaten, you're talking about gritty hair or horror. If the conversation continues and your players realize, oh, this person could kill us at any moment, but they're really much more interested in playing with us, mm -hmm. then you're talking gothic. You know, there's a lot of conversation with dangerous people who are very likely potentially enemies. Yeah, in a lot of ways, Gritty horror is Ravenloft, and gothic horror is Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, that's interesting. I 
though I, I mean Curse of Strahd took some steps in the right direction but and, and describes itself as gothic horror yeah but <laughs> realistically it's still D. but i think yeah like a lot of the the white wolf world of darkness system the conversation is where so much of the tension comes from mm-hmm. right because it's everyone is supernatural everyone is super powerful it's about positioning and social structure right now i think you run the risk of having it basically just become like a political intrigue game with fangs so i like to make sure that there's the casual death of weaker npcs just occurring in the background you know people who don't matter this is a good time to just attack a pc but have it directly as a result of their conversation Hmm. right you upset him he kills you because you upset him you are weak which is different from you're having a conversation and an arrow comes in from somewhere else and kills you because (laughs) the world sucks (laughs) This is also an opportunity to present some of your earliest, you know, moral or ethical quandaries. Do your PCs partake in the casual murder of NPCs? Yeah. We're going feeding. Yeah. You coming? I don't know why I just assume Gothic Horror, you have to be the monster. <laughs> a big part of a big part of Gothic Horror is also not understanding what the monster is. And, yeah. and going crazy. Like the fear of the monster drives you insane. Yeah, I would I would separate that out into existential horror. Uh, fair enough. Which you don't have conversations with Cthulhu. No, <laughs> not ones that make sense anyway. Mm, no, <laughs> those words start coming out of your mouth, and then your nose starts bleeding, and it's all downhill from there. And and then Dracula comes and starts like biting you on the nose. It's very <laughs> weird. And now we've descended into I hate comedic horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's it's, let's. it's Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Which is the best horror movie. Yes, I agree. All right, but but bringing it back in, okay. gritty realism. Fortunately, that this is already a genre that's like pretty well-defined. Uh, if you're tracking inventory, you're probably playing some kind of like gritty and realistic game. Yeah, especially if uh, inventory is working against you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to find ways to like get rid of things in your pockets. Yeah. Because like that extra half pound really, really matters. Right. So you you want to convey that the party is always at a disadvantage, right? They they recognize that there are things that exist that could help them that they don't have access to, which means they're relying on being clever and and planning effectively or getting lucky or some some type of uh, third party intervention, you know, kind of that long shot bet. Yeah, the more mundane the items that they long for are. <laughs> Oh yeah, the the grittier it is. Yeah, like you know? if we just had a freaking cell phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, in dark sun or tracking water, it'd be even grittier if we were trying to figure out how to get enough air. <laughs> <laughs> Once your players are thinking, okay, if we want to even, if we want to be at even odds, if we want to have like an average chance of succeeding at something, we need to plan way ahead, and we need to roll well and have a bit of luck on our side. They're going to be super cautious. And, and they're they're going to be always a little fearful of what's coming. Yeah. Games that have very quick and decisive combat mechanics are really good for this. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of Legends of the Five Rings specifically. It, it's famously deadly combat. Uh, and, and it's very much a game about social interaction because of that. But, you know, a lot of games try and make things grittier by making healing times longer. Mm-hmm. So the consequence of getting hurt is greater. But I think really what that means is great we have more montage while you're in bed you yeah know? like 
it doesn't that doesn't feel quite the same as oh your character is dead your combat is over you have lost because you got shot once yeah with games like this you want to punish stupid mistakes (laughs) if they charge an enemy across an open field they're probably gonna die yeah if you challenge a samurai to a duel they're going to fight you one of you is going to die yeah that's how this works that's how this ends Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe both of you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as a GM, if they get themselves, if through their own fault they get into a situation like this, don't send reinforcements. Yeah, do not bail them out. Because they're going to expect that that will happen next time. Yeah, expect the, uh, the stages of grief here. You're, you're going to get bargaining at the beginning. <laughs> Is there a way out of this? What can I do? How do I, what, what about that? What about that? What about that? You can roll a new character. Yeah, you, roll a new character is the answer. Which is how Dark Sun went. <laughs> Though it, actually, that one was in reverse. I insisted my character was dead, and our DM Angelo was like, "I don't know, man. Maybe like maybe you don't have to be dead. Like, <laughs> like maybe you 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 could have been a little bit out of range of the defi-. and I'm like, nope, I'm dead. Hey, he gave you an opportunity to help set the tone, so don't send those reinforcements. But what if you're playing a high adventure game? Send reinforcements. Yes. <laughs> And make them awesome. <laughs> Not just for the players, right? But reinforcements for the enemies, too. Yeah. It's like, if you mow through this batch of enemies, hey, a whole new team of foot soldiers show up. Mm-hmm. Like, go be more awesome, Ninja Turtles. And, yeah, and if you get in over your head, well, you know, Casey shows up with his hockey stick. Yeah. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, and, and this works, too. Sometimes that means that your your big bads have to die in not so glorious ways and then you just have to kind of peel back another layer of the onion and find out well they were just the dragon for a bigger big bad yeah like yeah that's high adventure is almost you're running a soap opera yeah very much Uh, make sure that you're hand-waving minutiae you know every gm and every player has their own personality and some people really like to get into the nitty-gritty of like the numbers and some gms really like to to track all that stuff or, or or to know what's going on with all, with all of that but let it go let some of those like very specific dcs go high adventure is not the system where you want to look at someone and go ah oh, man they got one hit point left no they're dead yeah exactly you killed them yep or, it was awesome you know it's it's like in D just give advantage for cool stuff yeah right give inspiration for cool stuff let it be used to do kind of mechanical bending things instead of adhering to a a strict die roll rule. Yeah, you'll hear in the RPG community constantly, people will say, oh, rule of cool, do like whatever's cool. If it's cool, let them do it. And I think we both completely disagree with that. Yeah. Like there are some systems where, no, if if it's cool, it doesn't happen because it doesn't make sense. Right. High adventure, if it's cool, it happens. Exactly. Yeah, that was uh, (laughs) where I had to do my own genre bending in my a catacon game in my 5e low fantasy because a player just like decided to be awesome my character is down this npc just got back up i want to be this npc and charge headlong in and i'm like i mean strictly speaking genre wise this shouldn't be possible but like let's make it a little more adventurous yeah go right? for it the player Ro- was roll it with advantage go yeah the player <laughs> weighed in and said I would like to lighten the tone a bit. Yeah, exactly. How do you feel about that? Right. (laughs) Mechanically, a a thing you can do in this situation also is eliminate low-level skill checks. Yeah, treat proficiency as competency. Yeah, exactly. So, 
you know, oh, I, if, if the player says, I want to make an acrobatics check to like jump over the railing and like land over here by them so that I'm flanking, just say, no, you do that. Yeah. You know, if, if, it's, if it's under a 10, like you're good at this, you do it. Or, or it's the thing like, you know, you're a circus acrobat mm-hmm. is your background. It doesn't matter if your acrobatics check is plus four or plus eight. You just get to use a trapeze. You know, like when you want to swing across a chasm on a rope, you don't make a check for that. You, of course, you make the jump, and it looks cool because you're an acrobat. Yeah, Robin the Boy Wonder is 15 feet up on a ledge, and he wants to get to the ground. He does it. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't roll damage against himself. Yeah, he doesn't turn an ankle. <laughs> but you don't have catfall. He does it. Yeah. <laughs> And, and then, you know, of course, make sure that your stories for, for a high adventure game feel swashbuckling and high adventure, right? Mm-hmm. They should have big impacts, uh, probably outsized impacts, even when you're thinking about, you know, where the PCs really punch. You know, they should kind of always punch above their weight class. Right. They they should get some benefit from that daring do. Yeah. Like, you know, in Morning Glory, when we're consorting with the uh, heads of state at level <laughs> eight, <laughs> like, whatever. And now we get to a genre that honestly, I think is more difficult than horror. And that at least to get right. And that is comedy. Yeah, because you can't roll for funny. Yeah. Funny comes while trying to do other things. Yeah, exactly. You can roll for gritty. Yeah. That's not a problem. Yeah. So I think the key for comedy for me is you need a straight man Mm. in order to have something to play the joke off of, right? If everyone is making the jokes, then then it doesn't work because nothing is serious enough. But as the GM, a lot of times it will fall to you Mm -hmm. to play it straight. So... The, the players do funny things and you laugh along and then the world responds in a very realistic way, right? And then they get to make more jokes about that. Yeah. Mechanically, you can demonstrate randomness because there is... Well, there needs to be sort of restraint on how serious we're going to be, right? And and, and how joking we, we're going to be. Yeah, and that needs to bleed over a little bit into the mechanics. Yeah, so... I like to roll things first and then interpret the dice when I'm trying to play very light kind of comedic tone games. So if you roll a failure, make the joke. <laughs> if you roll success, you succeed. So kind of narrate it appropriately. Yeah. Remember that uh, one aspect of comedy is surprise. And so if you roll more things randomly, there's just more of a chance that there's going to be something that is both surprising and funny. Yeah. You also want to allow at least some level of like metagame bleed or breaking the fourth wall. You know, players around the table will have these ideas and make a joke, and maybe that in some way gets reflected in what's happening in the game. Oh, I, I love doing that. No matter how serious a game we're playing, our table always gets a huge laugh out of what we're naming our ship. Our ship is always named the Hostile Negotiator. It doesn't matter what game it is, and uh, it's funny every time. It, it works for us. Yeah. <laughs> the sole exception by the way rogue trader i didn't give you the choice to name it not yet no 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 we did no no you named a ship yeah the gun cutter but your ship your actual rogue trader oh that's not our that's not our ship well true (laughs) it's the it's the imperium ship sir (laughs) it's uh silver lionhearts yeah something like that yeah so how about dark comedy yeah determining sort of the bounds of what is funny or what 
what the players laugh at or what it's okay to laugh at uh, really tells you like exactly how dark or like what kind of joking or, or where on the spectrum this game fits. So like making a joke about crucifixion is perfect for a history of the world part one game, you know, where it's basically Mel Brooks and we are running around Rome and, oh, uh, what what's this guy doing up here nailed up there? Oh, he's just hanging around. <laughs> I just want to play that game. <laughs> Please make that our next one shot. But but if you're like in a Looney Tunes game, crucifixion is probably not appropriate. Yeah, uh, but probably not. So Tales of the Floating Vagabond might want to skip that one. Or yeah. what, what was it? Tune? Was that? The, oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that old system. Uh, yeah, I think a, a great example of this for me, and and part of it of the comedy was in the retelling, but the all guardsmen party, mm-hmm. their uh, their approach to character creation, known as Darwinian character creation, uh, because so many of their only war characters were killed on the front lines by orcs. The group of survivors became their PCs, um, and you know it, it kind of progressed onward of we fought until we died and then we fought until we ran out of ammo and we died uh we fought until we ran out of ammo and we ran and then we were killed by the commissar for cowardice you know (laughs) we fought and then we were reinforced and we fought a little bit longer you know and it's just like that kind of repetitive process which is frankly quite grim to think of you know how many actual humans would be sacrificed Mm -hmm. all for just tactical incompetence is a is a grim sort of joke but in a dark comedy kind of game which is how we sort of interpret the 40k setting Mm -hmm. uh, i think it fits perfectly yeah like (laughs) you know you spend six hours rolling up characters only to watch them die what did they do well they eventually started coming up with grim backstories yeah exactly only 14 but he ran away to join the up dead yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so what if you need to reset the tone of your game because maybe it is kind of drifted far afield or you don't want to abandon the game you're playing in, but you're kind of getting tired of the direction of it. You you kind of want to change tones. Yeah, I mean, you basically have two options, right? You can do it slowly, starting this entire process over again, right? So if it takes, you know, five sessions to really set a tone, once you start moving things, once you start nudging things in a different direction, you're looking at five, maybe even more sessions because it's set. Yeah. The other thing, though, is there can be a sudden jarring event that happens in-game. And this is really great if it's triggered by a PC's actions, although it should probably be multiple PCs who are doing it or one action that most of the people in the party agreed to. So there's at least buy-in. Yeah, like when the Day of Mourning happens, the Eberron game isn't so lighthearted anymore. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, the atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah. Not not that World War II was particularly lighthearted up to that point, but you know. <laughs> it you know, like uh Yeah, springtime for Hitler <laughs> is a is a great way to start your game and then have the bomb go off. Right. The resistance was basically like yakety sacks all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Think about your high adventure game, you're like, ah, oh, we are in epic quests. But if the epic quest that is assigned becomes stop a genocide, that really brings the tone it grounds the tone much more and now you have characters who who can respond to like what's happening you know right are we still like happy-go-lucky swashbucklers or like do we really sort of like focus on uh, on a task that needs to be accomplished do we get 
more realistic, at least for a bit. Yeah, we had one of those moments in our uh, fifth edition Pirates game because you guys came upon a settlement of Sahagan mm-hmm. and massacred them because many of you had Sahagan as like hated enemies of your backstory. Yeah. Despite the fact that you had defeated the war party and it was just the women and children. I, I can't tell Sahagan apart. It, well, you could tell some of them were smaller. And, and it was like, okay, well, they run. We chase until every last one of them is slaughtered. And it was like, whoa, guys, like, this got dark <laughs> fast. It did get dark, which is why I'm not in favor of racial hatred as, like, a trait in race write-ups. Fair enough. <laughs> so you probably don't want to read uh, uh, Stormrack from 3rd Edition. Right. Cause <laughs> every race in there really hates the Haken. Stupid shark people. Did you hear that, Ishan? Uh, that... I don't want to know what that gurgling is, actually. All right. Well, then let's move on to the character creation forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week's Character Creation Forge is inspired by a question from our listener, Travis. So Travis uh, wrote in and asked us, he's playing in an Out of the Abyss campaign, and he wants to play uh, an inventor kind of a tinkerer type character yeah like a gadgeteer right and his idea was uh wizard rogue knowledge cleric um, kind of taking some expertises and tool proficiencies and this is a good idea the problem mechanically in fifth edition is that tool proficiencies stop being useful at like fourth level yeah there's only so many things that you can really make Mm -hmm. that are going to scale at all right very quickly they get overtaken by Class features or spells, yeah. So, because we love to reflavor things, we will be reflavoring spells. (laughs) Yep. Because it's 5th edition, it's pretty much all you can do. We don't have really item creation rules as of yet. So, what's the build? Rock Gnome, Transmuter 14, Tomelock 5, Rogue 1. All right, so obviously we're going to take some Tinker tools, probably an Alchemist set, something like that. That's right. Rock Gnome lets you make little clockwork tools that you can use, which, if you look at them, are basically reflavored spells. Uh-huh. Yeah, but very light. Yeah, and with 19 solid levels of spellcaster, you've got a lot of resources to work with, which we are reflavoring as gadgets. So from the very beginning, press the digitation, the wizard cantrip. Oh, that's your assistant. Oh, yeah, that, tiny homunculus. Tiny little mechanical assistant. Yeah. All the different things that you can do that, do with that. Change sensory experiences. Clean things. Uh, oh, Mage Hand would uh, allow you move things around. Mm, maybe that actually just means that you wind it up and it moves on its own. Yeah. Note that as a Tome Warlock, a Pact of the Tome Warlock, you can pick up other cantrips like Thaumaturgy and Druidcraft. So you can just have the entire array of I do little things spells. Yep. And every single one of those is just another little mechanical thing that you do. Yeah, exactly. You've always got something in your pocket that... Actually, you probably have, you know, 
springs and you know depending on the game batteries or some sort of like arcane power source and you know just in a quick six seconds you throw them together toss it on the ground and it does whatever it is you want it to do yeah kind of like uh like basher in oceans 11 yeah he's just some parts (laughs) can you make a bomb with these (laughs) he's just always fiddling yeah (laughs) so you'll also get the minor alchemy ability from transmuter that lets you take one substance and turn it into a different substance sometimes a weaker substance sometimes a more conductive substance yeah so you can take like stone wood and then a couple different types of metal and turn them into any of those other choices yeah so there are a lot of different ways that you can flavor this maybe it actually is alchemy and you know Travis was talking about, you know, alchemical tools and things like that. So maybe that actually happens. But it's also very possible that, you know, it's you turn a door that is metal into wood and then it's easily bashed or burnt down. And maybe that is reflavored as, well, you know, I build a little bomb. Yeah. I blow up the door. Another thing to think about is uh, like maybe potions Mm -hmm. uh, as spells, you know, so things that you cast on yourself is really more you just drinking a potion that you had prepared earlier yeah exactly what's your somatic component yeah drinking this vial Yeah, exactly (laughs) at wizard level six you get transmuter stone this is an object that you uh, create and it can have lots of different effects but only one at a time i like to think of this as uh part of your suit you know it's either your utility belt or uh, i think of you know superheroes blue beetle He, he can like sort of change shape to do different kinds of things but he can only really do one thing at a time yeah you know, he can't like his hands can't be both a gun and a battering ram at the same time, but you can totally pick. And, you know, you could always always take a thing out of your utility belt and hand it to someone and they can use it. Mm-hmm. And then at higher levels, well, your utility belt is even more amazing. Yeah. When you get to master transmitter. Exactly. Pact of the Tome gives you rituals, which I like to think of as tinkering in your workshop, right? You're Tony Stark working for an hour and five minutes to build a device that can, you know, speak with dead spirits. Yeah, I was going to say auger. (laughs) (laughs) And I really like the flavor of, uh, with Warlock, you have a finite number of spells that you use per short rest. And to me, like, you can use them, and you'll get them back after you rest. But that emulates the fact that sometimes you run out of your gadgets. Mm-hmm. You know, you reach for that trick arrow. Oh, quiver's empty. Yep. You know, I'm out of smoke bombs. Yeah, I really like the great old one for this too. Mm. Uh, because I, I like the idea of like the uh, the helmet that you put on that gives you your telepathy. Oh, yeah. You know, like like that, that one more than the other two just really seems to fit an, an object really well. And then when you lose that object, you find out it was in you all along. <laughs> it's because I implanted goggles in my skull. Right. Come on. <laughs> all right. So what is the backstory of your inventor? Uh, he's actually a failed transmuter. So he's a, a rock gnome of, um, uh, of, of a clan of gnomes that are traditionally transmuters. Um, hmm. But he couldn't quite hack it. So he kind of took a more traditional gnomish approach. Uh, so he builds gadgets and does different things like that to try and get comparable effects of genuine transmuters. Oh, fake it till you don't make it. Well, it, it's kind of like an alternate path, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, like uh, you know, like college wasn't the right thing for him, but maybe junior college was a good good approach. I like it. Kind of the Wizard of Oz. Uh, Yeah, kind of. Actually, very Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and how about your 
Uh, I think I'm going to go with Gnomish Rain Man. Oh, God. <laughs> Has a really difficult time communicating with other people, mm-hmm. uh, but really understands machines you know, okay. and, and these tools. And never really looks anybody in the eye or communicates or speaks directly to them, but creates little gadgets that does does it for them or delivers a written message. Oh, I like the idea that he... Uh... He has that little assistant, right? Like mm-hmm. a little mechanical assistant that just like passes messages. Yeah. You know, and, and it just like kind of like spits them out like an old, uh, like an old printer, you know, where you have to like <laughs> rip off the sides of the page. Yeah. Uh, you can press the digitate. Yeah. Right. Uh, and make sounds or the, the rock gnome uh, can make that music box. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's a singing message, right? I, I can't speak this thing to you cause I'm, I'm too nervous and your face is distracting, but. I can I can sing you my order, <laughs> or build a box that sings my order. That unfortunately sounds very difficult to play at a table. It it can be, but it it's certainly not more difficult than a, a kenku. Okay, fair. <laughs> that's a that's play this build on hard mode. <laughs> All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So this week, our five-star review comes from Chris Burlew of the Redemption podcast, a Star Wars actual play. This is Always Sparking Ideas, five stars. I am not the biggest D&D player, but I love this show because every time I listen, I get new ideas for my games. I love the format, the knowledge of gaming, and love the interaction between the hosts. Please keep up the great work. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, and uh, we are fans of yours. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about how to adapt other media for RPGs. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Crucible. Well, that's it for episode 75 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.